You guys doing good? Yeah. You guys doing good? Are you guys enjoying as much as I am enjoying the amount of sun that we've been having these last two days? Um, I don't know if it's because the Broncos won on uh, Sunday. I, I really don't think so. Um, I, I'm just thoroughly convinced God is not a Broncos fan. Um, don't ask me to find that in Scripture for you because it's probably not there. Um, but he's probably not a Panthers fan either. So uh, we all know God loves the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Um, well, the sun has been very, uh, very just encouraging to me. Um, one of my favorite cities uh, in all the cities I've ever been to uh, is beautiful Bend, Oregon. Uh, and this is like the weather they have year-round. Uh, which is kind of unfair uh, to people are like, oh, you're an Oregonian, you, you must love the rain. And it's like, yeah, I'm an Oregonian, Portlander by birth. I think I'm a central Oregonian by heart. I, uh, I like less rain, uh, more snow, and more sun. So uh, who knows? Uh, I, hope, I hope Portland catches up to Bend on its climate, uh, but I just don't think it's going to. There's some things uh, in play. Uh, with mountain ranges and coastal winds and all that good stuff that I just don't think can happen unless I were to tow the mountain to move and move it over to the other side. But I just, that's not going to happen. Uh, that faith would be in the wrong place. Um, that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, but uh, if you're taking notes, uh, we are in the second week of our study through the book of First Thessalonians last week. Uh, if you were here, uh, I just want to congratulate you on, on just bearing through uh, a lot of just information with us. We didn't really talk any theology, not really much practical. How can I apply uh, what I'm learning to my life? I think we closed with some practicality. Uh, but from this point forward, as we kind of go verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter through the book of First Thessalonians, I, I hope we are challenged and encouraged by what God's Word has to say. Uh, this is a very rich book, uh, even though it is uh, quite short in the scheme of biblical book length. Um, it, it is very rich, uh, and it is very important to us as the believer. Last week we talked about how uh, this is a, it's a game plan, it's a blueprint for how to be a, dis, uh, a dynamic disciple-maker, and we're going to look a little bit more at that uh, in the weeks and months to come. Uh, but we're going to hit chapter 1, uh, and we're going to do something that we don't normally do uh, on a Tuesday night as we're doing a Bible study. A, a lot of Bible studies probably do it. Uh, I'm just not known to do this. We're actually going to get through an entire chapter in one night. Um, don't get used to that uh, because we're just going to slay chapter one. And then we're going to take each chapter probably two or three weeks at a time. Uh, so buckle up as we're going to be through the book of First Thessalonians. Uh, you don't want to miss a service because there's just so much richness in this book. But if you do, we record all the sermons. You can come. You can get those from me. Uh, if you have a friend who maybe isn't here or maybe uh, at the end of the night, if you're like, man, that was a semi-decent message, Pastor Matt. I think I need to show that to a friend. Let me know. I'll hook you up with it. Uh, but this is a super, super rich book. Uh, I mentioned last week that this was the very, the very first book of the Bible that I actually taught out of. Uh, full-time uh, in a pastoral role, so it just it holds a lot of um, emotional connotations for me. Um, but just a little background, brief uh, overview of some of the things we learned last week, maybe a few more uh, Thessalonican trivia uh, little tidbits here that you can go home and be like, hey, I've got some uh, trivia, random fact of the day, boom, boom, boom. Uh, this was the first letter that Paul wrote. Uh, so Paul is responsible for 13, possibly and probably 14 uh, books of the New Testament, 27 books long. Uh, Paul wrote 13 of them, possibly a 14th as well. And uh, so 1 Thessalonians is the very first, the earliest letter that Paul writes. Not only is it the earliest letter that Paul writes, this is the oldest book of the New Testament. First uh, Thessalonians was written down before any other book of the old, uh, of the New Testament uh, was penned out. And you're like, well, I thought Matthew came first. Uh, the way biblical books are structured, they're not structured in a chronological 
uh, order. They're, they're structured by section. When it comes to the Gospels, the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we actually would believe that Mark was written first, uh, Matthew and Luke were written about the same time, and the book of John doesn't come for another 20, 30 years after that. Uh, we believe the book of John was written around somewhere around 90 AD, uh, Mark being written down uh, in, in the early to late 60s, and Matthew and Luke being written down in the 70s. Uh, this book of 1 Thessalonians uh, is coming at the late 40s, early 50s AD. So we're like right in the heart of the growth and the widespread uh, of Christianity uh, by one of its most prolific, if not the most prolific, uh, evangelist and apostle, guy by the name of Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, dude who used to kill Christians, now radically getting people saved for the Lord and establishing churches. Uh, the ancient Greek city uh, that this letter was written to was Thessalonica, uh, but Thessalonica uh, was not its original name. Uh, before Alexander the Great, the name of this city was Therma. Everyone say Therma. Uh, does anyone have a guess what Therma or why it would be called Therma? I could assume it has to do something with heat. Yes, so it has something to do with heat, and there in Thessalonica were some of the richest and most beautiful hot springs in all of the Mediterranean. It was the vacation capital of the world. Kind of like Bandorian, right? Nah, this, see, we brought that full circle. We had to do it. Um, but no, this was a vacation capital. Uh, people would come. They'd flock from all over the region just to chill in these hot tubs. Can't really chill in a hot tub. It's kind of a conundrum, but it happens. Um, and then in 315 BC, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great, or in my notes, Alex G., uh, he shows up uh, and he renames this city after his half-sister. Uh, and... For anyone who's going to have a baby girl, uh, I just want to recommend don't name your baby girl Thessalonica. It's just a weird name she might get made fun of in today's culture. Uh, but that was Alexander the Great's half-sister. Why is that? Uh, it's just, it sounds weird. Not many people have a name like that. Uh, now, some people have a name that is somewhat of a derivative from this. Uh, you see, nowadays, the town of Thessalonica um, is about 300,000 people. Uh, so back in Paul's time, it was 200,000, so it hasn't grown uh, a whole lot. But surprisingly, the town of Thessalonica is one of just a few biblical cities that are still uh, alive, still thriving, uh, still have populations uh, in them. And so we see Thessalonica being one of those cities. Uh, today, it's called, depending on what map you pick up, it's either called uh, Solonica, so they took off the Thess, uh, or Thessaloniki. Uh, so they took out the uh, Nika and put in Niki, uh, both coming from the Greek word Nike, uh, which is a victory. And we have people named Nicholas or sisters named Nikki. Uh, and so I guess you could name your daughter Thessalon Nikki and just call her Nikki, right? Um, but enough on that. Uh, this was a church that was established on Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, it was after he went to Philippi. He was here in Thessalonica for three weeks. Acts chapter 17 told us last week. And in those three weeks, Paul uh, teaches in the synagogue. He appoints elders and he establishes a church that begins to thrive uh, and begins to flourish here in the town of Thessalonica. Uh, this was a church of ragtag uh, individuals. They had known Christ for three weeks. Three weeks. That's it. That would be like uh, going down the street, uh, finding someone who never heard of Jesus before, which in, in, in America in today's day and age could be kind of hard, but hey, let's, let's, let's say someone flew in from Papua New Guinea. Uh, they decided, hey, I'm going to get a job in beautiful Portland uh, because they couldn't get anything in Bend. Um, and so this person from Papua New Guinea, never heard of Jesus, shows up. We're doing a downtown outreach with Hillside Christian Fellowship. We see them on the street. We're like, hey, how's it going, man? Have you heard of Jesus? They're like, no, who's this Jesus guy? And we're like, oh, Jesus is awesome. Uh, he's God. He came. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. This person's like, oh, my goodness, I want to get to heaven. Who is this Jesus? And then we begin to break down the gospel. They're like, I'm all about it. I'm coming to church. They come to church. Three weeks later, they're like, hey, I want to be your youth pastor. That'd be really interesting because I don't think any church in America would say, yeah, absolutely, Here, here's the job. But that's exactly what Paul did. People who'd never heard of Jesus, three weeks later, he's establishing them as elders and pastors in this church. And then he leaves them. 
And he doesn't leave any like solid Christians with them. He leaves three-week-old Christians. Now, eventually he's going to send Silas and Timothy back, and then Timothy's going to bring a letter back to Paul while Paul's in Corinth. But he establishes a church with supposed, or from the surface, immature Christians, yet this was a church that was thriving in its maturity. Paul was able to leave after only three weeks in this church because this church had been established, and these people caught uh, the message of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, and they said, we're ready to do this thing, Paul. We are ready to do this thing. Let's pick up in verse 1, chapter 1, and we're going to bust all the way through verse 10, and then we're going to break some things down. This is what it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy from the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all of Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every every place. Your faith towards God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what matter of entry we had to you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living, true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. Dear God, we just thank you so much for your word. And God, we pray tonight as we spend these next few moments, God, looking at your perfect word, the law of liberty. Uh, God, I pray that each and every single one of us uh, would just be transformed by the power of of your word. Your word tells us in Psalms that your word uh, endures forever, that it is a light unto our feet and it is a lamp unto our path. God, your word uh, is so important to the life of the believer. And God, I just pray that tonight, uh, God, your word would challenge us. Uh, God, as we look at the example of the church in Thessalonica, God, that we would be challenged by the maturity of this young church. And, And God, I pray that that would challenge us. God, I pray that it would inspire us uh, God, that we would be inspired uh, by by just how vibrant this church was. Uh, God, that we would be encouraged uh, by the things that make a mature church, by the things that make a mature Christian, and how those can be alive and active in our lives tonight. God, I pray that none of these would be my words, but God, you would speak through me. Anything that would be of me, God, may I not be able to get it out of my mouth, uh, but God... May your perfect word come through. So, God, we just thank you. Uh, God, we praise you in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 This was a church uh, of, of young Christians. Um, Paul had a reputation for doing this. Uh, he had a reputation for finding someone who never heard of Jesus, uh, tell them all about Jesus. They get radically uh, inspired and encouraged by Paul because Paul was a zealous guy. If you guys remember from the book of Acts, uh, Paul, whose name formerly was Saul, this is a guy who stood at the scene of a heinous murder. Uh, The very first martyr in all of Christian faith uh, was a guy by the name of Stephen. Acts tells us he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He was brought before the Pharisees, and he was murdered because of his faith in Jesus. Who was there standing and approving of it all? This guy by the name of Saul. And he's just standing there like, yep, you know what? This is a good thing. This is a good thing. We should get all these Christians. He actually began to travel around the area, arresting Christians, bringing them back to Jerusalem for trial, for death, for imprisonment. This was his job. His job was to persecute. His job was to arrest. His job was to make the life of a Christian very, very hard. Well, one day he's on his way to Damascus. Uh, He was probably coming from Gresham or something. No, 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 not, not our Damascus. Uh, but he was going to Damascus, and something miraculous takes place on the road. Jesus shows up. Not just a vision, literal 
Jesus, Son of God, angel of the Lord, appears to him on the road in the bright light, throws him off of his horse, and begins to speak to him. And says, Paul, or Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's like, I don't know who you are. And he says, I am Jesus. And from that moment, when Paul experienced the risen Christ, uh, Paul was forever changed. And he got radically on fire for Jesus in a very quick, quick amount of time. And so, because of that, his zeal and his passion, <laughs> his knowledge of the Old Testament, his, his revelation that Jesus Christ is Lord, he began to do this uh, and, and minister to young people, to old people, to men, to women, to Jew, to Greek, and said, hey, Jesus is the real deal. Let's get on fire for him. We see guys like Titus. We see guys like Timothy. We see guys like Sylvanus. We see guys like Barnabas. All dudes who are hanging out with uh, Paul. We see Mark. We see Luke. All these guys are dudes who are hanging out with Paul and get so much on fire for Jesus that they go and they rock the world uh, in their respective area. So uh, Paul, with this guy by the name of Timothy, who he actually sends back to Thessalonica to be one of the leaders in the church, and then we see in Acts chapter 17 uh, that, that Timothy is going to come back to Paul uh, when Paul is in Corinth. Uh, we actually have here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 the account and the report that Timothy brings Paul. Uh, Timothy's a young pastor, and Paul writes two letters to this young pastor and says, hey, let no one despise you because of your age. Let no one despise you because of your age. And I think that's something that rings true to us as young adults. Uh, maybe not even to us as young adults, but maybe to you and I. Uh, maybe we're young believers, uh, young Christians. Maybe you've only recently given your heart to the Lord. Do not let anyone despise you for your age or for your youth. Uh, because the Lord can use even the youngest, even the most uh, unlearned Christian uh, to do amazing, amazing things. I heard a sermon not too um, long ago uh, where the sermon was about um, don't be, I, I, I love the way this pastor put it, he said, don't be catfished by fake Christians. Christians who are so religious and they're like, oh, well, you know, you have to go to Bible school before you can lead a Bible study. You have to know the doctrines and all of this before you can lead. And it, no, no, no. If the Lord impresses you, if the Holy Spirit says, hey, go talk to that person on the side of the road, go do it. Don't let anyone despise you because of your age uh, or your supposed lack of knowledge. We have an example right here. Three-week-old Christians now leading a thriving Quick growing mega church in the town of Thessalonica. So, do not let people despise you because of your age. Now, it should be said, it should be said that these weren't dumb Christians and they weren't lazy Christians and they weren't Christians who were just going through the motions. The reason why they were able to do this, the reason why the Holy Spirit was using them in so much power and the church was growing so rapidly is because they were mature Christians. How many of you guys know uh, that maturity and age are not synonymous? Okay, uh, We're mostly guys in the room tonight. Uh, and so um, I'm sure if we had more females, uh, the votes would be more in the favor of them. Uh, when we were all in high school, or when we were all in middle school, let's be honest, I think the ladies, even though they were the same age as us, on the maturity scale, were a lot, lot more. I hate to break it to all of us, but it's probably still that way. It's probably still that way. Until we get to about the age of like 25, 26, uh, things begin to, guys catch up. Uh, we're we're kind of slow. <laughs> And maybe we don't fully catch up all the way. I don't know if we ever will. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Maturity and age are not synonymous. When I coached football um, back in the day, I, I said this to, to football players a lot. I don't know if I said it to any of you three. Uh, but I would say to the guys, I'd say, act your age, not your shoe size. Because we had some <laughs> seniors in high school who were acting like 12-year-olds. I'm like, dude. Act your age, not your shoe size. Like, come on. Um, 
but I'm playing football team. <laughs> yeah, well, football players tend to be on the lower side of uh, matric. I'm just messing with you guys. No, no, it's not. It's not quite true. Uh, but um, that being said, uh, maturity uh, and age uh, are not synonymous. This church, even though it was only three weeks old, uh, was very mature uh, because of three distinct things. And I wonder. Uh, it's probably not the case, but I just wonder if these three things that were alive and operating, really the three things that are the theme of this book, I wonder if those were a three-week sermon series that Paul ran while he was in Thessalonica, and then he says, hey, you got them, I'm going. These are the three things. He says this, and we can see this uh, in uh, verse 2. It says this, we give thanks to God always, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing, verse 3, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. The three markers, the three indicators of a mature Christian, a mature church, is, is these three things, faith, hope, and love. Paul, when writing to the church in Corinth, he says, he says uh, everything else is going to fade away, but faith, hope, and love, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. All the other stuff is fluff, it's good, but if it does not have faith, hope, and love, it is not worth it. Um, we see actually uh, in, in one of the other churches he writes to, uh, a church that was meeting in Colossae, uh, this church uh, operated in the same thing, faith, hope, and love. And we see in the letter to the Colossians that Paul commends them for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. These are three things that mark a mature Christian. Uh, if you're taking notes, I want to break these down for you real quick. The work of faith uh, is this. Uh, John chapter 6, the disciples asked Jesus, uh, Hey, what are the works of God? Like, Let us know what we must do to be saved. We want to know how to please God. We want to know how, uh, like, what works do we have to do to get on God's a good side. Jesus says, hey, this is the work of God. This is the work of God the Father. Believe in the one whom he sent. Jesus says, believe in me. That's all you got to do. They're like, well, well, I mean, Jesus, yeah, we believe in you. You're a pretty cool guy, but like, what do we got to do? Like, do we have to like wash our dishes? Do we have to clean up after our, our neighbor? Do we have to do this? Do we have to do this? I mean, the law, we have all these laws. Jesus, what do we have to do? What is the work of God? Jesus says this, the work of God is to believe in me. Believe in me. This is what the work of faith is. It's faith. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is believing that Jesus Christ is who he says he was and who he says he is and who scripture says he is. That is Messiah. That is Christ. That is the anointed, the appointed one, the one who will save the world, who will take on the sins of the world. If we believe in the name of Jesus, Romans tells us that anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. What is the work of faith? What is the way to get to God? What is the way to get to heaven? It is believing in Jesus. This is the number one indicator of a mature Christian and a mature church is someone who believes in Jesus. Someone who says, theology is this, Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. It's all about Jesus. Jesus must be first. You can do a bunch of other great things. You can work at the soup kitchen. You can lead worship. You can sing songs. You can teach the Bible. You can do all those things. But if you don't have Jesus... If you don't have Jesus, it's for nothing. It's for nothing. We're told in Scripture that even our greatest works of righteousness are filthy rags. We can't do anything without Jesus if we want to have power. We can't do anything to earn our way to heaven without Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing. And the best part about this is when you put your faith in Jesus and when you believe in Jesus, then the doors get opened up and now you can serve with purpose. Jesus says, I am love. And he says, you can't love unless you have me. 
First Corinthians chapter 13 tells us that we can prophesy, we can serve, we can do all these things. But if we don't have love, if we don't have Jesus, then we are a clanging brass or a sounding brass or clanging cymbals. We're just a bunch of noisemakers, good for nothing. And sadly, the world has been exposed to so-called Christians who don't have Jesus. And it's put a pretty bad taste in some people's mouth. I'm not going to say, oh, you know, the church hasn't done their job. The church has done their job. And the church is doing their job. But there's some people out there catfishing the world into this false Christianity that does not involve Jesus, and it's good for nothing. It's good for nothing. The mark of a true, the mark of a mature, the mark of a healthy Christian or a healthy church is a work of faith. What is the work of faith? Believing in Jesus. Jesus first. Jesus plus nothing. So, examine our lives. Take some time to reflect. Maybe you go home and you look in the mirror and you just stare. Are you reflecting Jesus? Is Jesus the number one priority in your life? Or are you, rather than Jesus plus nothing, you're like, Good works, good works, good works, good works. I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to follow this rule. Don't want to break that rule. Boom, boom, boom. And I'm going to sprinkle a little Jesus on top of it and I'm ready to roll to heaven. No, no, no. Jesus first. Then all that other stuff. And when it comes down to the brass tacks, it's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus says, I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. We're told in Ephesians that it is by grace we have been saved through faith, not of our works, lest any man should boast. So the next thing, work of faith, labor of love. First John tells us, Jesus is love. And he says, if you love me, then you will do my commandments. So, faith, by faith, believing in Jesus, uh, it is by grace we're saved through faith. Not of our works, but James tells us faith without works is dead. So there is some things that we do, but not because we think we need them to earn our way to heaven because it's Jesus plus nothing. But out of a love for Jesus, once you have experienced the true love that comes only from Jesus, then you begin to do things out of love. I mean, I'm not going to ask you guys to raise your hand or anything, but when you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, uh, you tend to... Uh, just because out of love, you tend to do more things for them. And you're not like looking for something in return. It's just you love them. Let me tell you, when you get engaged, you actually like, it's even more. And I find myself in this place where I'm just doing things for Mariah because I love her, not because I'm expecting anything. And, and that's the way it is with God on such a larger scale. When you fall in love with Jesus, and you experience the love that Jesus has for you, you begin to do things not looking for anything in return, not trying to earn your way to heaven. You begin to do things because you love the Lord. What did Jesus tell us were the two greatest commandments? And every other commandment, every other law, every other prophet hinges on this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says... Uh, if you love me, you will do my commandments. First John tells us that if we love him, we'll do his commandments. And it, it, it tags that verse. And my commandments are not burdensome. When it says a labor of love, labor means work. We're doing stuff. But it's not a work that's burdensome. It's a work that we do out of love. We are doing this. It, it we, we're not like, oh, man, you know, I really love such and such. I, I mean, I really love this person. Man, I just really hate I hate to do all this. I know they're going to be happy. I know it's going to bring them joy. I, I, I mean, I know they're going to be, I, just, I don't want to do it. No. When, when you love someone, you're like, I can't wait to do this for them. This is going to be so cool. So cool. So, so hint to everyone, anyone who has a significant other, Valentine's Day, this is... Sunday, okay, make sure you mark that on your calendar. Don't miss that opportunity. Uh, but the labor of love. That's the second sign of a mature Christian, of a mature church. It's a church that is loving 
people and loving God and operating in that love, working in that love because that love, those commandments, they're not burdensome. Uh, I heard this, uh, uh, there was a story in Time Magazine uh, back in the late 1940s um, and, and this, this reporter, he went and there were refugees and orphans uh, and, and it was just, it was a really disheveled place. And this reporter, he sees, he sees this young child, very small child, carrying another child on his back. And, and, and I mean, it's war-torn, rubble, not a good situation. And the reporter gets down on the knee and says, hey, son, I mean, that's got to be pretty heavy. And the kid goes, no, this ain't heavy. This ain't heavy. This is my brother. And it just goes to show that true love, doing something for someone out of true love, it's not burdensome. It's not heavy. It's an act of love. It's a labor of love. And that's what we should be as the church. We should be helping others. Work of faith, labor of love, and a patience of hope in Jesus Christ. The church here in Thessalonica is a church that longed for eternity, a church that hoped for and longed for the return of Christ. Not in the hope for, in the sense of, oh man, I really hope it happens, because if it doesn't, it's going to kind of be a bummer. No, no, hope is the absolute expectancy of good to come. We tend to use hope in our, in our modern vernacular as, I don't know if it's going to happen, or, or if it won't, but I really hope it does. Um, that's not hope. That's wonder. Uh, hope is the absolute, the resolute, the unwavering assurance that this is going to happen. A future event that is going to happen. The absolute expectancy of good to come. And the good that was going to come was Jesus. He said, I'm coming back. And if he didn't come back in their lifetime, they knew that if they had put their faith in Jesus, that they were going to spend an eternity with him in heaven. Can I give you guys a secret to life? You guys ready for this? I mean, it's a small group, so so lean tight. But the secret to life, these are the keys to live a great life. doesn't have to be a secret. Go tell everyone you know. This is the secret to life. Live backwards. Live backwards. Now, I don't mean go around like this and like, hey, how's it going? I, I mean, I'm, no, 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 I don't mean like live that, that backwards. What I mean when I say live backwards is this. If you put your faith in Jesus, you know you're going to be forever in heaven. When you die or if Jesus returns, you are going to spend eternity in heaven. And when we truly begin to understand that, when that has become engraved in our heart and in our mind, when that is who we are, people who know that heaven is my eternity, I have an absolute expectancy that I am going to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven, when that becomes who we are, we can then live backwards rather than looking, oh man, I really hope I get to heaven. We can live from this place over here. Heaven's great! And now we can live saying, heaven's great. I'm doing this. We're living backwards. And when we live backwards, things begin to make sense. Life begins to make sense. When tragedy hits, it begins to make sense. When difficulties hit, it begins to make sense. When the whys and the how come this is happening in this world? When those happen, it begins to make sense because heaven is the ultimate outcome. Jesus has a plan. And when we begin to live backwards, when we begin to see this life as a temporal thing, uh, I, I heard it said one time like this, life is just boot camp for eternity. <laughs> or for the football players, life is just daily doubles for eternity. We're, we're learning here in this life here on earth, but heaven is where we are going to go. When we begin to realize that, when we begin to realize that it's Jesus plus nothing, and we get to spend an eternity with him, living in the most crazy amount of love, then we can truly experience real life, fresh life, abundant life, life to the fullest, the way God intended us to experience life. And that is a life that is abounding, overflowing, bursting forth, gushing of faith, Love and hope. That's the secret to life. You don't have to go to a seminar. You don't have to spend $500. How do you become a successful person? 
or what are the 17.25 keys to life? No, here it is, it's free. Live life backwards. It's all about heaven. It's all about Jesus. And when we live life in such a way, life begins to make sense. So I just want to encourage you guys with that. This is what Paul begins to say to them uh, here. He says this in verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. He begins to tell them that I'm proud of you. You're elect. You're God's chosen. You're doing some great things. You are a mature church. Uh, I'm pretty stoked that I get to call you my spiritual kids. Now, something comes up here in verse 4. Uh, it, 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 this word election or the doctrine of election uh, and, and churches have differences on what this means. Uh, did God choose you? Did you choose God? Lots of different things. Uh, and theologians have been arguing it for a long time. Uh, and, and if we were to try and solve it tonight, uh, we were just going to spin out of control because we're not going to be able to figure it out. Uh, I, I heard it said this way, uh, that if you try and explain election, you'll lose your mind. If you try and explain election away, you'll lose your soul. Here's the reality. Election's a reality. We don't understand it. This is what uh, God said to Job. Uh, Job was trying to say, yeah, well, this, this, this. And, and God's like, hold on, Job. Hold on. Did you put the stars in the sky? Can you, like, put them in place during the seasons? Uh, did, oh, did you create that? No, 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 no. Because I did. You don't even understand how it works. Your mind cannot comprehend this, Job. It's the same thing. We're never going to be able to understand election here in this earth. We're going to lose our minds trying to figure out how this all works. Uh, this is what the great uh, uh, teacher and, and, and theologian uh, Charles Spurgeon said. Uh, Spurgeon said this. He says, I'm glad that I was chosen before the beginning of time. I'm glad I was chosen before I was born because I'm pretty sure Jesus wouldn't have chose me after I had started living. We mess things up pretty good. But God, he chooses. How? Well, our brains are too small to comprehend that. Um, and you're like, okay, well, then if, uh, why go to church? Why put my faith in Jesus if I don't know if I'm chosen? Here's the reality. Go to church. Learn about Jesus. Say, man, I want that in my life. Romans tells us that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Choose Jesus and find out he chose you. Choose, choose God. Find out he chose you. If you put your faith in Jesus, then God knew you were going to put your faith in him, so he chose you. How does that work? I can't do it. My mind's going to spin. So here's the thing. God doesn't owe us an explanation. God doesn't have to give us an explanation on why election, why predestination, why foreknowledge, why all that stuff works. It just does. Jesus says, I wish that none would perish, but that all, that all, would come. We do the coming. We come and then we sit at the throne and we realize God says, yeah, you're my child. You're my child. Come unto me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Choose God. Find out God chose you. This is what it says. Uh, <laughs> I wrote this down in my notes. Um, if God was small enough for us to understand, uh, he wouldn't be big enough for us to believe in. If God was small enough to understand, then he wouldn't be big enough to believe in. Uh, there's two things that are reality in this world. Two things that are reality, not only in this world, but in this universe. Uh, one, there is a God. And two, you are not him. There is a God. Number two, you are not him. Uh, and so, how does it all work? Choose Jesus. And see what God does. This is what it says in verse 5. He says this, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you. Um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 tells us this. It says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be witnesses to me. Uh, and then he begins to break down uh, some regions where they're going to be witnesses. Uh, Paul says, Hey, this word did not just come to you in word alone. He stood in the synagogue for three weeks and he preached, you know, you're thinking, he's like, no, 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 it didn't just come to you in word. It, didn't, it wasn't just head knowledge. It wasn't in one ear, out the other. He said, no, it came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit. Some things took place that were radical. The Holy Spirit did some crazy things. There was power, literal power. I mean, people being healed power. I mean, people prophesying power. Some crazy things are taking place. 
Here's the question I want to ask you. Do you want to see the Holy Spirit move in your life? Do you want to see the Holy Spirit? Do you want to see some Holy Spirit power in your life? Let me go turn on the TV. If I had a televangelist up there, do you want to see the power? Like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not going to say call in and spend 17 cents and get a vial of cold water. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not talking about that kind of power. I'm not, this is no emotional roller coaster of you want to experience the Holy Spirit? You got to do one, two, three. No, no, no. If you want to see the power of the Holy Spirit, you want to see the Holy Spirit in action, this is what I'll tell you to do. This is what I'll tell you to do. There's not a program, there's not a 17 step list on how to get the gifts of the Spirit. No, you want to see the power of the Holy Spirit operate? Go witness to someone. Go witness to someone. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 tells us this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses. It does not say you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be a great worship leader. It does not say you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be a great leader of a nonprofit. It does not say you will be uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to do this, 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 and this. No, it says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. You want to see the power of the Holy Spirit? Go witness. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's someone you go to school with. Maybe it's someone at McDonald's as you go through the drive-thru. Maybe, and Sean's in the back, yeah, I need a big chicken. I'm going to go witness. No, 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 no. It could be anyone. You want to see the power of the living God, the Holy Spirit, operate in your life, in the here and now. Crazy book of Acts kind of stuff. Rooms shaken. Thousands of people giving their heart to Jesus. People being healed. You want to see that power in your life? Go share the love of Jesus with someone. Go share the love of Jesus with someone. Let them experience a work of faith. Let them see your labor of love and it gives them hope. Faith, hope, and love in the power of the Holy Spirit. Go witness. And I guarantee you this, you will see the power of the Holy Spirit when you witness. 100% of the time, you will. There's not like, oh, you know, I didn't see the power. I guess I'm not going to do it. No, every single time. Jesus said, go into all the world. Go into all the world. Make disciples. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be a witness. I guarantee you this. If you begin to share your faith, you will see God do miracles trying to figure out why you're not seeing miracles or, man, nothing is going right in my life. When was the last time you shared your faith? When was the last time you shared your faith? The key to life is to live backwards. The key to seeing power and the power of God, go share your faith. Go witness. Go be about your Father's business. Because there's this feeling that can't be described. Um, I think the only way that I could try and describe it, but this just pales in comparison to the feeling, uh, is when you're like a little kid, and like you have been, you've, you've looked at all the Toys R Us catalogs, and you're like, oh, if only I could get that present. I'm never going to get that present. Little Timmy down the street, he got that Nerf gun. It's the coolest new Nerf gun. And I mean, it's got it's got flywheels and the blaster. It's like so, such and such RPMs. It's got the new Elite darts. You know, oh, I want that Nerf gun. Never going to get that Nerf gun. So you don't even ask for the Nerf gun because you're not expecting to get the Nerf gun. And then you come, it's your birthday. You're like, I'm turning eight. Woohoo! And then you open up a present and you got the Nerf gun. And you're like, oh my goodness, I got the Nerf. Oh, super crazy. What's having Nerf for? Like that excitement. Okay, that pales in comparison to the excitement that you get when you go and you share your faith with someone. And they're like, oh man. Jesus, he sounds cool. Let me think about him. That excitement is out of this world crazy. They just want to think about Jesus. Let alone when you share the gospel with someone, you say, hey, this is Jesus. Do you want to believe in him? Heck yes, I want to believe in Jesus. Can you tell me what I got to do to be saved? The, the joy, the endorphin rush, the, adre like the adrenaline rush, I mean, you name a chemical operation that takes place in your body where you get goosebumps and your knuckles turn. I mean, you can't explain it. The feeling you get when someone gives their heart to Jesus because you stepped out and you shared your faith. And I guarantee you this, the more you do this, the more you will be able to see the power of the Holy Spirit operating in your life. What's the key to success in this world? Put Jesus first. 
what's the key to get power? I mean, that's what they tell us in America. That's what they tell us in the world today. You need to have power. You need to have money. This is the only way you're going to ever succeed in life. True power, real power, meaningful power comes only from the Holy Spirit. And how do we experience that? By sharing our faith. Wow, I was not planning on staying on that verse that long. Okay, verse 6 says this. You guys believe that, though? You guys believe that God wants to do something crazy in your life? Not only in your life, but in the lives of those around you? I mean, he tells us he wants to do it. But he says, hey, go. Hey, go. You see this picture in Isaiah chapter 6. It says, who is there? Who's going to go for it? Who's going to go? Isaiah says, all right, here, here I Send me, I'll go. I'll go. God's just waiting for us to say, hey, you know what? Send me. I'll go. Here's the thing. He's already sent you. Let's go. Cool, cool, cool. Verse 6. Verse 6 says this. And you became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy. Now that is a paradox if I've ever heard one. Affliction with much joy. Was it last week that we talked about paradoxes in here? No, no, no. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I was listening to a sermon in, in a, a pastor who was talking about paradoxes. It was, it was a sermon on uh, Revelation, and it talked about the wrath of the Lamb. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen a lamb before, but they're not very wrathful. Um, pastor Dennis, uh, Pastor Dennis and his wife Jill, uh, they own some property out in Damascus, uh, and they have... Lots of sheep. Uh, they got cool sheep. And, and, and I had the blessing of being there a day after uh, a few of the sheep gave birth to some lambs. I didn't see them when they were slimy. Um, but uh, sorry for the mental picture. But I saw the lambs the day after. I mean, these are cute little things. Like, I mean, like baby bunnies are cute. Like little chipmunks are kind of cute. Baby lambs, I guess that's kind of a, that's a double double, right? A lamb is a baby. But uh, lambs are so cute. And so I'm holding this lamb, and I'm feeding this lamb with a bottle. And then I realize I'm just holding a bottle, and the lamb's face isn't there, you know. And the lamb's, like, falling asleep in my arms. So I sit there on a bale of hay for, like, 35 minutes with this baby lamb just hanging out. And, and then, oh, and then it just, it kills me. It kills me how cute this is. It nuzzles its little head up under my armpit and just, like, wiggles its way in there to get warm. It's just a baby lamb. So cute. Revelation tells us the wrath of the Lamb. Now, I mean, that's a paradox. Like, I don't get it. Now, we know that the Lamb is Jesus, and that Jesus is going to come on a white horse with a sword and all that good stuff. But paradoxes are like this. Um, did you know that in Sequoia National Forest, or National Park, over 2,000 gallons of water flow upstream, or, 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 or flow up? Um, that's not real, like water flowing up. How does that work? How does that work? Well, trees, redwood trees, they're sucking up uh, over 2,000 gallons of water uh, every few minutes to, to, to get to all their extremities and whatnot. And so a paradox, a paradox is something that on the surface seems contradictory, but when you actually look into uh, the true meaning, uh, it is full of truth. And so here is a paradox, uh, affliction with joy. How many of you guys have been afflicted before? Anyone ever been afflicted before? Now, if you haven't, I'll, I'll afflict you right now if you want me to. No, 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 I won't do that. I won't do that. That could get, uh, I could get a lawsuit, so we're not going to do that. Um, here's the thing. Affliction is not something synonymous with joy. When you're being afflicted, when you're being abused, when you're being persecuted, when people are coming against you, when someone's smacking you in the face, uh, that's not a time where you're like, ha-ha, so full of joy. No, affliction is like, this really sucks. I wish it would stop. But Paul says, you receive the word in affliction with joy. Joy. How are we able to uh, endure affliction with joy? Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's some affliction with joy. Uh, Dan, you played running back in high school, yeah? Um, when you would run, uh, who's your running back coach? You were. Oh, okay, awesome. Thanks, Ron. No, no, uh, when, when, when you were running, um, and let's say we were playing Camby, they had some pretty big linebackers, right? Uh, you turn the corner, get a nice block. And now you see touchdown, I mean, you, you see end zone, you're, you're running. And you get smacked by a linebacker. That's some affliction. That's some physical affliction taking place. Do you get, like, bummed out? You, like, drop the ball, you're like, I don't want to play football no more. And you, like, walk by the sideline? No way. Yeah, because if you did, I would have yanked you. But no, you're like, let's get up, let's go, let's go, I'm excited, I want to hit another run. Give me the rock again. 
that's that's this affliction with joy kind of thing. Um, we had the Super Bowl on Sunday. Uh, some dudes were getting rocked. If they were having some super epic joy, especially if they were Broncos, because well, they won. Uh, spoiler alert. But here's the thing: uh, affliction, receiving the word of God in affliction with joy. We can do that uh, in this world uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit. It comes back to you. Want to see the power of the Holy Spirit? Go share your faith. Go share your faith. When things get rough. You live backwards and you focus on, you know what? My outcome, if I put my faith in Jesus, my outcome is heaven. When affliction comes, you're like, hey, it's just temporary. Yeah. It's just passing. Yeah. It's just boot camp. It's going to be over in a few weeks. Yeah. This is the reality. And we can have joy in all these things. This is what it continues to say um, in verse 7. It says this, So you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia, all those who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia, but Achaia. Uh, this is super cool. This is super, super cool. Uh, their joy became an example uh, to all the churches. Uh, the reason that they began to grow was because they were a mature church. They were a church that was operating in faith, hope, and love. Uh, but they had this aspect of joy because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they began to grow. And they're, they're, they're like this model of a church, faith, hope, and love, power of the Spirit, and joy, became an example not only in Macedonia and Achaia, which was the surrounding region, but to all of the known world, all of the churches. People were like, oh man, that church in Thessalonica is doing some pretty cool things. They are a pretty dynamic church. They're a pretty radical church. Their actions are speaking louder than their words. How do we know their actions were speaking louder than their words? Because it says this, have sounded forth. That word there in the Greek, sounded forth, it literally is tr- uh, uh, translated, was trumpeted forth. Like, like, trumpeted forth, but not them tooting their own horn by other people tooting their horn, saying, man, have you heard about that church in Thessalonica? They're doing some crazy stuff. Oh, you got to go check out www.thessalonicachurchepicness.org. They're doing crazy things there in Thessalonica. You should see their kids' program. It's crazy. Like, People were talking about how awesome this church was, and it was sounding forth. Here's the really cool thing. I'm so blessed to be a part of Hillside Christian Fellowship uh, because it's a pretty dope church. I'm not just saying that because I'm on staff at that church, uh, but people are talking about Hillside. You go out in the community, uh, you talk about like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you go to the grocery store and you're picking up stuff and someone says, oh, groceries, yeah. Yeah, I'm doing this for backpack buddies. Oh, you go to Hillside Christian Fellowship? Oh, yes, I do. How did you hear about Hillside? Oh, my aunt, second cousin, said it's a great church. We, uh, <laughs> I, I run our Facebook page for the church, and, and I, was, I was looking at the insights today. Uh, we had three people show up on our church's Facebook page because of a Google search result in Australia. Not just like Google.com. Google.com.au. That's the Australian Google. And someone got to our website, someone got to our Facebook, because that now Google has some things to do with that, but people are talking about what God is doing. Why? Because God's doing something. Because God is doing something, and when God does something, people see it. People see it. Here's the cool thing. We all get to be involved with that. Maybe you're like, oh, that's cool, this, this sounds great, but I'm not doing anything. Start. Start. Get involved. Do something for the Lord. I want to ask three questions here uh, in just a second. But we see this. This is what it says. This, this is so cool. This is verse 9 and 10. It says this, For they themselves declare concerning us, so, so, so the churches and the works that are being done by the church in Thessalonica are declaring forth what Paul and Silas had done when they were with them. It says this, What manner of entry we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son. You guys picking up on this? Check this out. Turn to God from idols. Work of faith. Believe in Jesus. Serve the one living and true God. Labor of love. And then wait for his son. Patience of hope. 
The three things that mark a mature believer, that faith, that hope, and that love, are the very things that Paul says, check it out, you did it again. You turned from your idols. You believed in me. You threw them all away. Jesus plus nothing. He says, you served the living God. They loved. They worked. They labored in that love for the Lord. And then they waited for his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, uh, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. So my question is this. Uh, are you turning from idols? Are you turning from idols? Uh, you might be like, well, I don't have statue. I don't have a little Buddha or, or a rock sculpture or something. Like, what are you talking about idols? No, no I, I mean, maybe. Maybe, but... But the idols that we serve today uh, are pretty crazy. Now they're becoming flatter, brighter, and more more pixels, and better sound. I mean, uh, a lot of people worship TV, not a computer. Um, we worship our cars. We worship our houses. We worship our jobs. I mean, maybe you worship your boyfriend. Maybe you worship your girlfriend. I mean, it sounds weird to like say it like that. You're like, oh, I don't know. no, but what is an idol? It is anything that is in place or in front of God. If I were to have you all take out a piece of paper and write down the top five priorities in your life, if we were to poll like Americans, what are the top five priorities in your life? Maybe we were to go to Clackamas Community College, closest college to us. Walk on campus. Hey, we have a quick survey for you here. What are the top five priorities in your life? I mean, I guarantee. I guarantee. Uh, graduate college. Uh, get a good job. Uh, buy a house. Uh, get married. Uh, pay off student loans. Woohoo. Uh, I mean, that's going to be probably like the majority of what people say. I actually read some of those uh, in a, uh, in a, like a, Campus newspaper or something like that. Yeah, I mean, so number one priority. Here's the thing. If you're a follower of Christ, your number one priority should be what? Jesus and what he has called you to do. As a follower of Christ, if your number one priority is not to seek and to save the lost, that's what Jesus' game plan was when he came to earth, seek and save the lost. If that's not your game plan, if that is not priority numero uno, then whatever else is in front of that is an idol. And you have made that a God, a lowercase g God. The question, are you turning from your idols? Mark of a mature Christian, mark of a mature believer, mark of a mature church. Work of faith. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Turn from idols. Turn to God. Next question, are you serving? Are you putting your love to action? If you're not serving, you're going through the motions and doing all that good stuff. You do like, raise your hands in worship. Oh, man, I love church. Yeah. But you're not serving? Do you truly love the Lord? And, and, and maybe you're like, well, I, I can't work in the nursery. Goldfish and babies scare me. I mean, you don't have to work in the nursery. You don't even have to work in kids' church. You don't have to work in... There are so many places to serve. There's so many opportunities to love. Do you love your neighbor enough to tell them about Jesus? Is their eternal outcome worth it to you to be obedient to God and to share your faith? If not, is your love really love? Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will do my commandments. Love God, love people. And he says, my commandments are not burdensome. Are you serving the living and the true God? Turning from idols, are you serving? And lastly, are you are you wait are you waiting for Jesus to return? Does the prospect of Jesus coming back make you excited? Do you have hope? Not only does the prospect of Jesus returning make you excited, I would challenge that even more so, does the prospect of Jesus returning make you more busy about seeing people come to Jesus. Because if Jesus returns, we're going to talk about end times kind of stuff. That's what the first Thessalonians focuses on a lot. 
But, but if we believe what the Bible has to say, when Jesus returns and Christians are no longer here, all hell is going to break loose on earth. If we truly believe that, are we not telling everyone that there is hope and his name is Jesus? I want to close with this. Maybe you've heard this before. Um, but a very famous atheist, a guy by the name of Penn Jillette. Anyone ever heard of Penn Jillette before? Uh, he's, he, he's a magician, Broadway, hilarious dude. He was on The Celebrity Apprentice. Great guy, super funny dude. Uh, but he was asked one time by a Christian, he says, uh, why are you an atheist? Why are you an atheist? This is his response. Um, and I think Christians can learn from atheists. Uh, I think that atheists can preach to a Christian. This is what he said. When asked, why are you not a Christian? He says, you know, the reason why I'm not a Christian uh, is because I'm not going to believe in something that his followers don't even believe in. And so the guy says, well, explain. Explain. He says, well, here's the thing. If you truly believe everything that your book says, there should be some action. So he said, what do you mean? What do you mean, Ted? He said this. Any person in the world, they were walking down the street, and they saw a little kid in a crosswalk, and they saw a car speeding. And they knew that if they didn't do something, that kid was going to get hit by the car and die. Someone's going to jump out and save that kid. He said, you Christians, you believe that there is this speeding car called hell, called eternity separated from God, barreling at humanity. And you say that Jesus is the only way to safety, but you don't jump out and try and save Why am I going to believe something that people don't believe in to actually tell the truth? And it's challenging because here's an atheist saying, I believe, I believe if you actually put your faith into action. If you truly believe, I believe. I want to challenge us with that. Do we truly believe that God loves humanity? That God cares for humanity so much that he sent his son? God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the only way someone can be saved hell can be saved from eternity separated from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you truly believe that? Do you truly believe that? It's easy to say, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Actions? I mean, for better or for worse, they tend to speak louder than words. Works don't get you to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you have to have actions get you into heaven. No, no, it's Jesus plus nothing. But when you fall in love with Jesus and you truly experience the love of Jesus, when you truly experience the grace of Jesus, then it calls us to action. We labor out our love. There's a little, little cattle prod. A little kick in the rear end. Not from Pastor Matt, but from God's Word. And I believe the Holy Spirit is. I believe God wants to say to each and every single one of us, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, that might sound crazy, but uh, but if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, hey, there's no time like the present. There is a very real hell. There's also a very real heaven, and there's a very real God who loves you. But if you put your faith in Jesus, God's saying, hey, don't be about what I've told you to do. Go be my witness. Go make disciples of all nations. This is what Jesus said. He said, because I'm coming quickly. I'm coming back. That might sound like a daunting task. Oh, i got to go tell everyone. I don't know what to do. He says, well, I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age. He's with us. What does he say just before? He says, all power has been given to me. Go. He's not doing it alone. you got brothers and sisters in the room. Maybe you're nervous. Maybe you don't think you can talk to someone about Jesus. Grab a brother or a sister in the room and say, hey, let's go do this together. But even if you didn't have a physical brother or sister, Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm with you. I've given you my Holy Spirit to be the power so that you can do it. So I want to challenge you. Are you turning from idols? Are you serving God? And are you hoping for his return? Let's pray. Dear God, God, forgive us for the times where, we, uh, where we've been lazy. God, for the times we've put idols in your place. 
God, when we haven't put our love to action, God, where we've got so caught up in the here and now that we've lost sight of our future. God, I pray that each and every single one of us, God, that we would be like that church in Capernaum. That when we walk down the street, people would say, oh, there's Dan Cheryl. And I've heard about his work of faith, his labor of love, his patience of hope. Well, Sarah's like, we don't want that. His good works, his affliction and joy, and the power of the Holy Spirit is being sounded for. God, I pray that that would be our reputation. We throw away all our own egotistical, prideful reputations, and that we would have this, like Paul said, he said, if I boast, I boast in Christ. That we would get to a place as individuals, that we would get to a place as a church. Jesus but nothing. That we wouldn't have Our religiosity would become an idol. But our relationship with you would become an idol. God, draw us closer to you. God, draw us closer into your presence, God. May we become more in tune with your spirit. God, may we not just sit and wait for that, but your word tells us if we draw near to you, you draw near to us action. If we abide in you, you abide in us. You told us to go. You want to receive power. You'll do that when you witness. God, I pray that we put our, our faith to action. We put our love to action. We put our love to action. Our hope. God, we thank you. God, I pray that you just give us boldness to do these things. God, may we go from this place changed and transformed by the power of your word. So God, we just thank you and we praise you in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.